This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ready to rock and roll? Ready to go. Take with the mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. And whether you're an absolute beginner or you're approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. Now, if you're joining us for the very first time, a huge welcome and thank you for joining the Equity Mates community and congratulations on starting your Equity Mates journey and investing journeys, two different journeys. If you are still getting up to speed with the basics, you can check out our Get Started Investing podcast. But with that said, my name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. We are on a journey here to become better investors, and I think one of the key things that we've learned uh, over the years doing Equity Mates, and we've heard from a number of experts, is that the analysis of companies and investment opportunities is only half the battle when it comes to investing. Mastering your mind, getting on top of your behavior uh, and correcting for any cognitive biases you might have can often be just as important. That's why I'm really excited that we're doing this series all about the psychology of trading and investing. Yes, brought to you by IG. So a massive thank you for IG for supporting this series. As you said, Ren, our brains aren't really wired for for trading, but IG believe they can be rewired uh, by, and they're helping us master our trading mind and taking control of our emotions, biases, and psychological influences that come with everything that you just mentioned. They are focusing on trading psychology and have collected a wealth of information, including interviews with experts in the field, articles, podcasts, and eBooks, all brought together in a dedicated master your mind trading hub. And today it is our pleasure to welcome a third expert to the Equity Mates studio to help us unpack the psychology of investing. It is a great pleasure to welcome Tony Sycamore. Tony, welcome. Thank you. So Tony is a market analyst at IG. Similar to the previous two episodes we've done, we're going to be unpacking how to manage our emotions, how to build good habits when it comes to trading and investing, how to identify who we are as a trader, and then finishing with uh, the tools and resources that Tony uses to find information and a bit about on recovery and ice baths. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Tony, a, a lot to cover today. To kick it off, how do you trade? All right. Well, it's a, it's a very good question. My 
journey in markets started back in the mid-90s down on the futures floor of the Sydney Futures Exchange. I was with Macquarie Bank working in the three-year bond pit and I was very cognizant of the difference between brokers and traders. So at that time, I was working for a broker, Macquarie Bank, and I could see the locals or the traders there which were trading their own accounts. And I always wanted to, I guess, become a local or a trader. And I could see that the days of the Sydney futures floor were numbered. Every uh, exchange was moving towards electronic trading. And I thought what I'd like to do is to see out some time on the floor, learn as much as I could with Macquarie Bank, and then become a trader. But one of the first traders actually to trade via screens. Uh, So that was my process. And I resigned from Macquarie Bank. Um, I sold my shares for $6 at the time to fund my trading, which uh, looks like a really ridiculous move. But at the time it sort of funded my next move so I can uh, I can take that and move on um, and I became a trader and essentially I was trading from the garage of my parents house um, just trying to make some money and after about six months time I thought look this is just going to be fantastic I'm going to be done with this in about five years I'm going to be sitting on a beach or or, or whatever um, was making really really good money but like a lot of people that come to markets for the very first time uh, that first period was followed by a period of losses or drawdowns. And I was smart enough to realise then that I didn't know quite as much as I thought I knew. And that those first six months, perhaps perhaps I'd got a little bit lucky uh, in, in that journey. And I thought, I need to learn more about markets. So I joined a, a Melbourne-based stockbroking firm called JB Weir, and I became a broker on their retail futures desk. And apart from obviously talking to investors about their trades in, in futures markets around the world, we're also trading a, a, a futures fund or a, a managed fund, if you like, for some of the clients there at JB Weir. And um, I was assisting my manager. The fund did fabulously well and at about the time of 2003 when we saw some of these large floats coming through the door, the, te- the Telstra's, etc., the CBA's, uh, Goldman Sachs decided they wanted to have a bigger footprint here in Australia. So they looked around, they thought about growing organically, I guess, and then they decided that the best course of action was to actually take a stake in JB Weir or merge with JB Weir. JB Weir obviously um, had a huge footprint in the Australian equity market and, and that was the the process that they went through. So Goldman Sachs, JB Weir uh, became the organisation that I was involved with. Now, anyone that knows anything about Goldman Sachs, they know that they're one of the biggest trading firms in the world. They're very, very happy to take risk on their own account. They don't like any uh, risk being taken on their in the name of private individuals. So they went through the business and I guess after sort of going through the more important parts, which they bought, such as the stockbroking arm, etc., they then came to the, the the private client futures desk. And they saw uh, a couple of guys there that were making money for their clients doing pretty well. And they said, listen, we don't want to shut you guys down, but we're going to send you off to proprietary trading. Um, and you couldn't have imagined the smile that sort of graced our faces. Like it was a dream coming true. Suddenly we parachuted into the biggest trading bank in a trading room in Sydney amongst the best traders that you could possibly imagine. So I'd been at Goldman's or JB Weir for about three years prior to that. And then I spent the next six years trading Goldman Sachs, JB Weir's money here in Sydney. And that involved uh, the GFC. We uh, had a really good run during the GFC. But things changed after the GFC. There was things like the Volcker rule, the Dodd-Frank rule. And basically what that did was the US government um, had given a lot of the US banks or, or all of the US banks uh, taxpayers money to stay afloat. And as part of that, they said that you can't obviously go and trade uh, taxpayers' monies in the market. So they closed <laughs> yeah. down proprietary trading at all the big banks. So I'd 
I guess had a good run. I'd been there, as I mentioned, for about 10 years in total. And I, I thought about my next step. And one of the things which happened after the GFC was proprietary trading was effectively outlawed um, across the world. Some of it was rebranded, rebadged on balance sheets, facilitation desks, etc. But by and large, the job which I had done uh, up until my early 30s was, was effectively outlawed. So it was an interesting situation. And I sat out of the markets for about a year. Um, it was a tough time after the, particularly in banking after the GFC, a lot of the banks were still hemorrhaging and, and trying to sort out their next steps. And I was trying to sort out my next steps as well. Um, and what I landed on was to become a, a, where I'd made my money in, in at Goldman's was essentially in the foreign exchange market along with some commodities and stock indices. So I thought it made sense for me to become a foreign exchange salesperson. And I did that at a bank called BNP Paribas, um, large French bank. And what I found there was a fantastic organisation. French banks have amazing systems, amazing quantabilities. Uh, but where, where I'd gone from being at a US bank in a US-centric financial crisis I soon found myself at a French bank in the European sovereign crisis around 2012, 2013. So uh, things were going really, really well until that point. But then some of our clients, similar to what we saw during the banking crisis last month, uh, where there was rumours that potentially clients and other banks were pulling the lines of Credit Suisse First Boston, a similar thing was happening with the French banks. And uh, some of the clients here in Australia and abroad had decided that they didn't want to trade with BNP Paribas because they just didn't know if BNP Paribas was still going to be in existence the day after they put the trade on. So things started to go a little bit pear-shaped there at BNP Paribas and it was a very sad day. I ended up leaving BNP Paribas um, to join Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Now, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, if you remember back uh, around that 2012, 2013, 2014, the Aussie banks were doing magnificently well. They sailed through the GFC. Uh, there was no problems with the European sovereign crisis. But uh, I became a foreign exchange uh, salesperson at CBA and one of the things there I was doing was, was writing a technical report, which was something that I was doing at Goldman Sachs as part of the proprietary trading team. Um, and I would also, I guess, had picked up a lot of those skills back on the futures floor back there in the 90s. I was very interested in all the research which the brokers brought down. Um, and so I, I guess I took sort of that to the next level and I started putting out a, a, a technical report for clients, um, which was very well received. And I got nominated for the Technical Analysis Awards in London back in 2016. So that was quite an honour. They uh, flew me to London. Um, but after that point of time, if you recall, the Royal Commission and things started to sweep the Australian banking landscape. So after going from a US bank to a French bank to an Australian bank, I'd found that I'd finally been caught up with, if you like. And I thought, right, I've had enough of this. Um, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start my own FX technical advisory firm, which is what I did for four years before becoming a market analyst here, in, uh, here at IG and before that at another broker as well. So that's the long story version, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I'm here today. Let's get to the emotional uh, side of it, the psych psychological side of it, because uh, trading your own money, trading massive banks' money, uh, helping your clients trade their money would have been filled with emotion, uh, you know, in big wins, big losses. Um, so when you think about the emotional side of investing, uh, what, what are some of the big emotions that come to mind? Yeah, look, one thing I will say firstly is trading uh, other people's money is a lot easier than trading your own <laughs> money. For, for obvious reasons, you're a lot more attached to your own money. Um, even though the money which a, a, a bank may give you is considerably more than you could ever hope to possess in your own possession. So uh, that, that's the first thing I'd like to point out. But we talk about 
about emotions in trading and at, at one point of time, all traders are going to go through those emotions, hope, fear, euphoria, uh, the ego of being on top of a market, the greed um, and anger if a trade's gone wrong. You know, they're all emotions which traders will experience at some point of time during their career. Now, what I tried to do and I guess what I learned being able to be in that environment there at Goldman's was that a lot of successful traders, and this is how I, I guess I think about it as well, you want to take as much of that emotion out of trading as you possibly can. Now, successful traders and investors, they're different in terms of the way they trade to private traders. They're not making huge bets. They're basically very, very disciplined. They're taking very um, high probability setups with a good chance of success with a very controlled or limited downside. And, and, they, and they do that by going into a trade with a plan. You know, they know where their entry is, they know where their stop loss is, and they know what their target is. So essentially, essentially they've got a plan, which means that they can control the outcome of the trade rather than being controlled by the emotions which drive any trader. Um, and quite simply, that has enabled um, it to become more of a routine in terms of how you trade. You treat every trade the same. There's no trade that is special. There's no trade which is different. And then it becomes, I guess, you become desensitized a little bit to the emotions which can lead to those terrible trades. It might be averaging into a trade. It might be putting on a trade at the high or the low. All those types of things. If you can follow a plan and have some rigidity around your process, it certainly helps removing those emotional roller coasters. Mm. So there, you mentioned a few of the, I guess, aspects of a plan that you have in place, um, your target price that you, you'd get out at, the stop loss, the, the amount that you're willing to lose. Are there rules of thumb that you have for those kind of things? Like, do you say my stop loss should always be like 20% below my entry price or is it dependent on the individual trade? Very rigid. Um, in terms of we would generally, and I'll, I'll go back to the times at Goldman's and also with some of the hedge fund clients that I've dealt with. So it's very, very different again, as I mentioned, to the private trader world, whereas the private trader world, you've got a small amount of capital. You've sometimes tempted to put on bigger trades because it doesn't seem as much, you know, $1,000 might be 10% of your capital, but you know, $1,000 is sometimes neither here nor there. But when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of capital under management, you've got to be very, very disciplined. And at a big hedge fund, uh, using this as a guide rather than a hard and fast rule, if you lose somewhere between 5% of the capital um, and 7%, you're getting a very strict talking to. So, so it's that tight. Um, if you lose more than 7% of the firm's capital, now we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially billion dollars, that's a lot of money for a partner or a firm to lose, you're out the door. Mm. Um, so that means that you've got to be a lot more rigid about your risk management process. So generally what we would do is we would try and start small at the beginning of each year. We might be risking half a percent of our, our notional capital. And then as we build up that capital base while playing with the bank's money essentially, we might be risking one or two percent, potentially looking to leverage that view or that trade through optionality as well. So it's a very, very disciplined process, but because of the the, the umbrella that you're under in terms of a trading manager or a manager of traders is is, a tr is is looking at each trader as a trade themselves. So they don't want to see one trader out of a team of 20 lose 20, 30, 40 million dollars and undo the work of all the other people in there. So it is very much well a more rigid and more disciplined approach. Now, if I put money in a trading account and I lose $10,000, I'm really annoyed at myself, but it doesn't mean that I can't go and put another $10,000 in my trading account tomorrow and start again. That doesn't happen with your big hedge funds, with your big proprietary trading firms. They just... You, you blow up, you're pretty much well, you don't get a second chance. Yeah. Wow. So you can't chase your losses. 
you can't revenge trade as much. Yeah. I mean, it, it just means that you're digging yourself a bigger hole and, and that means you have to be more disciplined in terms of how you deal with drawdowns. So every trader has a losing trade. I mean, I, I know that people would love to believe that every trading that you put on is going to be a winner, but it just isn't that way. You know, taking losses, having losing trades is part of trading because the unexpected happens. And this is where a stop loss is extremely important. You're protecting yourself when the market doesn't do what is expected. And this is, I think, another rule where we see the difference between the professional trader and, and and more the newbie type of trader. They're happy to put a trade on. They're not going to put a stop loss on. Um, if the trade goes against them, they're going to hope that it comes back. But having hope in a trade is probably one of the most dangerous situations you can actually be in. Mm. We well, mentioned discipline there and that's a, a good segue to talk about habits. Like you've had plenty of experience around the globe trading with some of the best traders in the world. What are some of the habits that you've built yourself um, over time and what are some of the habits that you've seen some of the equally some of the best traders around the world sort of employ that has led to success? Yeah, some of the best traders in the world. I mean, you, you could sort of, you know, some of the guys I've worked with, I think, as I mentioned, they're sharp ratios, etc. They're up there with the world's best. So, been, you know, they what's might a sharp have, ratio? A sharp ratio basically measures your performance. So, if you put a dollar into a trade, what are you going to get out of a trade? So, essentially, uh, a good sharp ratio is anything well above one point five. Um, but these guys had sharps of three and five. So every dollar they were risking, they were pulling out $3 or wow. $5. It was wow. extremely Jeez. impressive. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, how their process varied from mine, I, I wouldn't put myself in, in that league. Um, but what I did know was I had to be aware that I needed to resist the temptation to revenge trade or to dig myself a bigger hole. Um, now, Goldman's were quite funny because the start of their trading year was always December the 1st, which when you think about it, markets generally go through a very quiet period mm, between mm. mid-December and mid-January. So all of a sudden, we're looking at a mountain we had to climb at the beginning of each year and doing it at the worst possible time. Now, there was quite a few times there when we're into the second week of December and we might be down a couple of percent. We're sort of thinking, wow, we've got another three or 4% before we actually hang ourselves. And these markets aren't particularly good. So you have to be aware of when, I guess it's like driving to Queensland or, or going on a long road trip or a trip. You've got to understand when the driving is good and when the driving is bad. So there's times, you know, right here, right now, we're in Easter holidays. So the volume, the, the, the volume and the liquidity of markets is a little bit less. Over Christmas, the liquidity and the volume is a little bit less. You need to adjust your driving for those particular circumstances. Now, if we're in a normal type of environment and the untoward or the unexpected happens and you start giving back money, what I would generally do is I would give myself a, a, a yellow card and then a red card. So what that meant was that if I gave myself a red card and I'd had three or four losing days in a row, I would effectively close out all my positions and I would take some time off. I'd go for a walk. I'd go to the beach, do some stuff which actually just short-circuited that process. And what I found is instead of that losing process or that drawdown becoming more extended and more deeper, maybe into eight days or 10 days, I was starting again with a fresh set of eyes after resetting. And, mm. and, and I think that whether you're talking about sports, you're talking about trading, that ability to stop and to reset is really, really important. It's a pretty nice day today. I might give myself a red card and let Bryce finish this up. <laughs> I guess when we talk about habits, there's uh, one side, uh, which is what we've just spoken about, which is like the, the habits that you have when you're actually trading. And then I guess there's also habits about how you become the best trader you could be, like, um, you know, what what you do in terms of uh, the, the information that you're 
your reading or like how you structure your trading day and stuff like that. Are there any habits that you've worked with in body in terms of their like personal lives to get the best out of themselves? Heaps of Red Bull. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, trading to become good at trading is the same discipline, that same dedication that is required to become a doctor or a scientist or or whatever your chosen profession is. Uh, And this is where it gets interesting because you see people coming new to the markets and going all in first up and they haven't paid their dues. It's like me walking into a doctor's surgery and expecting to perform eye surgery or heart surgery. I just haven't got the training. So you need to make sure that you can actually, I guess, move into trading in a disciplined and orderly approach. Um, But in terms of how I start my day, every day with IG, I put out a, a, a trader's view of what's happened in, in stock indices, what's happened in the rates market, what's happened in FX markets, commodity markets, Bitcoin. And, and that means that a huge part of what I do, even before I start to write a note, means I'm doing a lot of research. Now, that could come from a Bloomberg article. It could come from a bank's piece of research, which lands on my desk. Uh, it could come from having a coffee and sitting in front of CNBC TV at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, but Before I do anything, I'm learning about what happened in the markets overnight and then I'm starting to process what might happen during our day in Asia. Um, So it's really, really important to keep that uh, process consistent. You can't go into a market not knowing what's happened to then expect to know what might happen. So getting the background, um, you know, when we think about the last few years in markets, um, analysts, traders, um, we've needed to learn about what the R or the effective transmission rate of various strains of COVID have been. Uh, We've needed to understand what a, a property developer explosion in China means. Um, a ship stuck in the Suez Canal, for example, what does that mean for supply chains, delivery times for chips, all that sort of thing? And the only way you can do that is by keeping up with the news, whether it's reading, whether it's sitting down with a coffee and watching uh, CNBC or Bloomberg or ABC News uh, or SBS News, whatever it is, you've got to try and keep abreast of what's happening in markets. So the good thing about that is it sounds like hard work, but if you, if you love markets and you enjoy markets and you've got an enthusiasm for markets, whatever you're learning about should be enjoyable. Um, and, and the one thing I will say about markets is it, it never gets boring. There's always something new, whether we're talking about a US financial crisis, we're talking about COVID, we're talking about um, supply chain disruptions, rampant inflation, uh, you know, very tight labour markets, so many things happening which we've got to come abreast of. And it means that you're continually learning. And I think that's a really big challenge as well. Mm. Yeah, investing is this great pursuit. This might sound a bit glib, but it's this great pursuit where you can monetize your curiosity or monetize your interests. Like whatever you're interested in, whatever rabbit hole you're going down, there's probably a trade or an investment that you could put on on the back of it. Like in any industry, in any sector, in any company like in whatever you're interested in yeah and you become you become a specialist i mean it depends how far you want to go down that rabbit hole as well and there is an extent that you probably should say right i've gone far enough down this rabbit hole but you know there's that element of curiosity what's down there is this an equity markets trade is an fx trade is it a rates trade is it a commodities trade i mean a lot of these these asset classes are all linked by and large whether it's a risk on or a risk off type movement um but yeah that's absolutely right you've got to be able to get out there and learn and explore what's going on Interested to, to move to understanding the trading DNA and how how your experience, I guess, has led you to figure out who you are as an investor. You've made it sort of clear that, you know, from day one, you're interested in the research and analysis and the macro and, and then sort of combining that with technical analysis. Have you ever taken a trade and said, this is me for the next 20 years? 
A type of trade, do you mean? Yeah, well, I mean, like, Ren and I invest for, like, the long term and I kind of get the impression that, you, you know, your experience through Goldman is, like, day to day. So how do you... Ha- your, time, your time horizon isn't a 20-year yeah. compound. No, it's <laughs> not. Um, um, no, and it's not. But I guess I've tried to now... I, I still trade... Um, whether it be on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis, I still dabble. I mean, it's 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 funny because you go from trading a big slab of money at a bank to trading your own money. It's like going from Premier League to, to third division. So some of that excitement wears off a little bit, but you've got to keep involved and, and sometimes there's opportunities. You know, there's you've got to, you know, Tesla trading down at $120 uh, at the turn of this year was, to me, looked like a great trade and it turned out to be a good trade. Um, in terms of my investing process, well, absolutely, I'm looking for stuff which I, I think might work for, for, for longer-term process for my, my, for my super account yeah, and, and that yeah. type of stuff. Mm. So um, it's really gelling how that all comes together. But um, I, I don't really go into a trade saying this is a 20-year trade. I, I, my t- because of my background, I'm probably thinking, minute. yeah, not so much 20-minute, <laughs> but if I'm in a trade for six months it feels like a long time wow, to me okay yeah <laughs> okay what's your favorite chart pattern so when i uh started down the futures floor macquarie bank had a very good technical analyst by the name of frank bongiorno and he was an elliott wave guy um and an elliott wave analysis is basically it's quite a unique type of uh technical analysis okay. and it's got its own niche if you like but to me it just breaks down whether a market's impulsing higher or trending um, or in a correction stage. And, and as we know, markets tend to stay sideways or correct for about 70% of the time. And then there's that 30% uh, period of time where they're explosive and trending. So to me, it makes a lot of sense to actually be able to firstly define whether a market's in a trend or, or, or in a range. Um, and obviously, I'd prefer to catch the trend part of it because that's where the gratification comes a lot quicker. Mm. Um, but the other part of it as well is it does provide a framework around risk reward. So in terms of a favourite type of pattern for me it's a you know i see a, an explosive move higher i see a nice corrective pullback and i think well this is only going to lead to one thing it's going to lead to higher highs i'm looking to get on board that or for example there might be a rounded bottom that we saw in bitcoin over the past three to four months there might be a rounded bottom like we might see in natural gas at the moment mm-hmm. so these sorts of things mean the momentum's potentially waning and that potentially we're set for reversal so i think you can probably see some of the biggest trades when hey look this this momentum or this trend has now become, um, you know, mature and is uh, set for reversal. And to me, that can be a good trade as well. We don't talk a lot about technical analysis at Equity Mate, so it's great to have you in the studio. And I've done a couple of interviews recently around this. One of the experts said that for us sort of layman retail investors, the 50-day moving average is the first thing that we should look at. The second one said it's the 200-day moving <laughs> average. Where do you fall? Well, I'm going to fall with the latter. So, and, and, and I think, it, again, it's a horses for courses type situation. Depends on the timeframes you're trading and, and something that works for me might not work for someone else. But in my experience dealing with some of the big hedge funds, particularly the systematic ones, um, they do watch that 200-day moving average. They're probably not quite so interested interested in, in what's happening in the shorter time frames. And I can give you an example, the ASX 200, if you recall the very first trading session of this year, um, the ASX 200 got absolutely pulverised, uh, fell down below 7,000. And that was largely due to a stop loss going off um, as the ASX 200 
broke below the 200-day moving average. The 200-day moving average at that time was around 7,010. Now, the low in the ASX 200 was 69.05, that very first day of the the new year, and then we ended up rallying all the way um, up to 75.67. So it was about a – you know, that was the the spit-out low, if you like, and it felt very much more like a false break low. We spoke about knowing the conditions of the market. Well, the very first trading day of the new year, the 3rd or the 4th of January, people are still on holidays. Liquidity is absolutely terrible. So if you've got a big order – You've got to be very, very careful when those sorts of conditions are in place. Well, if people are interested in uh, learning more about the technical side of uh, investing and trading, uh, the IG website, you're writing a lot on there? Yeah, about seven to eight articles a week go up there and they're across varied as- various asset classes, uh, stock indices, currencies. Um, and, and what we're trying to do there is to get a bit of an idea on, um, you know, what's driving markets, the macro drivers, and then I'll put some charts in there, which I think are of interest as well. Uh, a couple of times as well, I'm not sure, uh, I'm assuming the equity mates have a strong interest in the ASX 200. Um, I put out an afternoon report as well in terms of what have been, who have been the shakers and movers in the session on the ASX 200. And also I put in a bit of a technical overview as well. So that gives you a bit of colour, whether you want uh, some fundamentals and some macro background or whether you want technical analysis, it gives you a blend of both there as well. Nice. Well, you can uh, go onto the IG website and read that analysis. You can also go to the IG website and read the content in the Master Your Trading Mind hub. Heaps of content to make you a better investor. But Tony, we want to get to recovery because uh, this is something that uh, IG introduced uh, to us when uh, we were first talking about you know the the different aspects of the master your trading mind hub and i'll be honest it's something i haven't thought about a lot when it comes to investing in my very short-lived very average sporting career we obviously uh, spoke about recovery um but you don't think about it when it comes to investing. So what, what does recovery mean to you as an investor or a trader? Yeah, and I think you can think about in a sport or a trading sense as well. You've got to have a good recovery if you want to get out there and perform at 100%. And um, for me, I, I, I would get into a, a, a run where I knew that I was in sync with the markets and that the run of trades could be X amount of trades long before you had a losing trade. But when that process of losing trades started to come around – that to me was where I needed to be a little bit more mindful of, of what I did next. And and as I mentioned earlier in the interview, the main thing that I would do there was just to, to step away, to freshen up, to go and get some fresh air. Um, the screens are very, very magnetic, as you probably know. You're drawn to the screens. You're sitting there in front of them. It could be 20 of the 24 hours a day and, oh. and your batteries run out. And, and that's where I guess in terms of trading and investing, there's a different type of, of, of not so much a, it's a mentality, but it's also, a, a, you know, the longer term trades are much better. And that's where I'm trying to take my trading style now to more longer term types of trades, because sitting up trading 18 to 20 hours a day, you don't end up in a, in a good state. You know, by the time I left Goldman's, my, my hands were shaking and, and <laughs> it was, what it was reckon, pretty intense. What, what do you reckon the longest you've ever been in front of a screen trading like what? What? Yeah. What do you reckon the longest period is? Oh, I mean, I, I probably needed more sleep than others. Um, but for me, it was a lot of the times we'd walk into the trading room. We'd probably start at our desks at six thirty in the morning, put some trades on based on what the U.S. equity market was doing, um, and then we'd manage those trades during the day. But ideally, we were looking to take a lot of the trades off into the London session or into the New York session. So that meant that a lot of times we were sitting there pretty much, well, it wasn't always uninterrupted. I'm not going to, you know, there was times to go out and get a bite to eat or go to the gym. Um, 
and, and we'd have stop losses on and, and it might be a quiet day like it is in the markets today. So it gave you that opportunity to be out. But it, it meant that we were watching the markets, whether it be um, walking through the streets of Sydney or, or in front of the desk, pretty much well 20 hours a day. Then we'd, what we'd do is if we hadn't got out of those trades before we went to bed, we'd put stop losses on. So that might mean that a broker would call us and say, hey, look, um, you know, this is what's happened. What do you want to do? And uh, there was also times as well where we needed to be up for the US data. You know, it might be an employment data. It might be uh, CPI. It might be an FOMC at four o'clock in the morning. So for me, probably the, the most I would go would be 18 to 20 hours. But there was guys which would, cause, you know, when the, when the hunting was good, they'd be hunting for, for days on end. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Need that ice bath. <laughs> well, Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on. We have reached the end of our of our discussion, but as as I said, we don't really often speak about technical analysis and just listening to your story and the intensity of um, what you're doing versus how Ren and I sort of treat investing with the get the core portfolio and just let it do its work. It's uh, yeah, it's it's just fascinating to to see the differences for really what we're both trying to achieve is making money in markets it's just there's that's right uh, just different many time ways frames. to do it yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah, fascinating when we're we're long-term investors because it's going to be decades before we realize we were wrong <laughs> <laughs> you find that in minutes <laughs> but i yeah so so a massive thank you and a, and a massive shout out to ig for supporting this series i think we've been able to provide uh, insight into a different way of thinking about markets and and uh, insight into the psychology of trading and through their Master Your Trading Mind hub on IG.com, there are plenty of resources to get you up to speed, including interviews with experts in the field, articles, podcasts, ebooks, all brought together in that Master Your Mind trading hub. Tony is obviously putting content up there as well on a weekly basis to, to get you across. So head to IG.com. Obviously, trading involves risks to your capital, issued by IG Australia, AFSL 515106. Now, Tony, there is one more question that we have. We run an expert of the year competition. And by being on this show, you are automatically in the competition, <laughs> voted for by our community at the end of the year. They let us know who they think was uh, the best expert that, you know, brought new ideas and inspiration to them. And to help them understand a little bit about you, where would you put the beautiful glass trophy if you won it? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think there's only one place for a beautiful glass trophy and that's on the mantelpiece. So uh, it would take pride of place up there. And I hope the, uh, your listeners have enjoyed the interview today and, and, and found it useful. Love it. I'm sure they have. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 